Amen. Let's give it up for Olivia. Thank you, Olivia. Appreciate you reading God's Word for us. Very good morning to you. Uh, Glad to be with you this morning. Grab a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're here and you're exploring faith, but you're not really familiar with where Exodus 4 is, let me just say thanks for being here. I know it can be intimidating to enter into a a religious environment like this. You can grab one of those Bibles out of the chair back in front of you, open it up to page 49, and you'll be right where we are diving in. I want to start today with a question. Here's the question. Did you know that introspection is not always good, but in fact can be really dangerous? Introspection is not always good, but in fact can be very dangerous. Dr. Tasha Urich is an organizational psychologist who works with clients like Nike and Walmart, big-time clients, and she wrote a fascinating piece for TED.com on the dangers of too much introspection. Her article uh, begins like this. It will be on the screen. She says, it was Tuesday evening around 11 p.m. Holed up in my dark office, I sat staring at a set of freshly analyzed data. A few weeks earlier, my team and I had run a study looking at the relationship between self-reflection and outcomes like happiness, stress, and job satisfaction. I was confident the results would show that people who spent time and energy examining themselves in introspection would have a clearer understanding of themselves and that this knowledge would have positive effects throughout their lives. So she's saying, I was confident that their introspection would prove to be a really good thing for their overall emotional health. She goes on to say this, but to my astonishment, our data told the exact opposite story. The people who scored high on self-reflection were more stressed, depressed, anxious, less satisfied with their jobs and relationships, more self-absorbed, and they felt less in control of their lives. What's more, these negative consequences seemed to increase the more they reflected. It seems like introspection and self-reflection is not always a marker of emotional health. Interesting. Church historians, let's pick on us inside the church for just a second. Church historians, interesting, write about something very similar inside of the church called, I I doubt you've heard of this, the Puritan Paralysis. Anybody ever read about the Puritan Paralysis? No, okay, that's what I figured. Uh, Where they talk about this period in history, in church history around the 1600s, where a a group of Christians called the Puritans, who, by the way, are some of our favorite pastors and theologians around here, they would sometimes dive into this kind of crippling and often, uh, if I'm honest, morbid, if you read their work, morbid self-reflection, this morbid introspection. And this, if you've been around the church, you'll know what I'm talking about. This legacy is still alive and well inside of the church where those of us who would consider ourselves Christians can kind of like dive too deep inside of our own selves where we're like, and this language will be only be familiar well, to you if you've been around for a while, where it's like, I've got to like find the sin and kill the sin inside of me. And you, so you get like really morbidly introspective on like all of the things that are wrong with you. Or you like, I think a more common, uh, common uh, symptom of this is where you're like, oh my gosh, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? And you go into this like self-defeating introspection where we kind of like wallow in like, in like being lost in ourselves. 
We live right now in a cultural moment of introspection, self-realization, and self-actualization, right? Uh, we, we are told that if, man, if I can go in and quote-unquote find myself, then I will be true, and then I will be true to myself, then I can be free from anxiety and fear, and I can like live into my potential. We live in the moment of introspection. But here, Right here in the beginning, we have both secular psychologists and church historians agreeing that too much, too much, not all, I'm trying to be nuanced here, too much introspection can actually be really dangerous. And it's like, I just think about this uh, personally, it's like you, you might feel this way, I don't know about you, but um, most of the time, I was thinking about this yesterday, when I get really introspective, like, and I start like, kind of like dwelling on my internal brain and heart reality, I like don't find myself, but I often like confuse and concern myself. You know, it's like, I don't like what's going on inside of me, right? So, so the question I would ask is like, well, what's the answer? Like if introspection is not the way forward, what is the answer? How do we handle like this life that God has given us with this, these assignments in life that God has given us? How do we handle them well? How do we carry them with strength and not become overwhelmed by them and just kind of crumble? Well, Exodus 4 shows us the way forward. Exodus 4 shows us the way forward. Here's the answer. If I was to boil all of this down, all of this teaching down into one line, here would be the answer. The answer is more extrospection than introspection, okay? I looked it up, extrospection is a word, okay? For those of you who are, uh, who are like, is that a word? It totally is, it totally is. I looked it up. The answer is more extrospection than introspection. Here's what's gonna happen uh, throughout this chapter of the Bible. As Moses gets introspective, he gets defeated. As Moses gets introspective and starts like going like, Oh my gosh, I don't think I have it in me. He gets defeated over and over again. And God, over and over again, throughout this passage, is going to invite him into extrospection, to lift his eyes up and look outside of himself for help. And inviting him out of what we'll call like exhausting, introspective self-dependence and into the relief and power of God-dependence. That's what's happening throughout this passage. And it repeats over and over again. And let me bring this down into your life real quick. This is what he wants to invite you into today. This is what he wants. This is the invitation of today. He wants to invite you out of exhausting and defeating introspection and self-dependence, introspective self-dependence, and into the relief and power and joy and freedom of God-dependence. So here, here's what I'll say. If you walked in here uh, feeling defeated in any way or overwhelmed by God knows what or like a failure, um, welcome to church. Whether or not we will all admit that, we all kind of feel that way about something in life. And God wants to invite you into this really freeing and beautiful reality that you don't have to carry your life assignment on your own. God wants to carry it with you. That's what today is all about. So let's talk about a little bit of context before we dive in. Let's orient ourselves in the story, especially if you're new uh, with us this Sunday. We've been walking through this book of Exodus. So here's a little bit of the backstory uh, to lead us into Exodus chapter four today. You can think of this like, I love the show The West Wing, like last time 
on the West Wing. You know, it kind of orients you in the story. You're like, okay, I know, I know what's going on with Jed Bartlett, the president, right? So this is last time in uh, the book of Exodus. In Exodus 1 and 2, we find the people of God trapped in really despairing slavery in Egypt. And it feels like God is nowhere to be found. So we spent multiple weeks talking about how to live faithfully when it feels like God is a million miles away. But at the end of Exodus chapter 2, and as we walk into Exodus chapter 3, God shows up. And God shows up and he says, hey, like, I've seen my people's pain, I've seen my people's suffering, and I'm here to save them. And he begins to talk to a guy named Moses, and he basically says this. He goes, hey, Moses, I've seen how my people are suffering, I want to save them, and I'm going to send you as, like, my instrument and the leader of my saving work. And as we enter into Exodus chapter 4, we enter into the middle of this conversation that Moses is having with God where, I love this so much, where Moses is basically explaining to God that God is crazy. <laughs> and that there is, Moses is basically going, hey God, glad you have big plans, I'm out, okay? And that's where we enter in in Exodus chapter four. So in this dialogue, here's, what we're, here's, here's kind of the outline of the teaching. In this dialogue, we're gonna see Moses express three fears, okay? And we're gonna look at each of these fears. Three fears that are holding him back from living into God's good plans for him and his people. And each time Moses expresses one of these fears, God is going to lift his eyes up out of kind of like defeating introspection to extrospection, looking to God who is the source of, his power, of, of Moses' power. And ultimately, these three fears represent three common fears that we all have that can hold us back from God's good plans for us. So we're going to look at three fears. Fear number one, the fear of people and their opinions. The fear of people. Now, all of you are like, that's in me. That's in me. The fear of people and their opinions. The number one question that we are all asking, whether you will admit it or not, whenever we walk into a room or we walk into a party is this question right here. Will these people like me? You know? Will these people accept me? We're all wrestling with the fear of people and their opinions. In chapter 3, God says to Moses, Go and tell the people I appeared to you and sent you and that I want to save them. And Moses responds with a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of questions. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this Moses answered, God, what if they won't believe me? And will not obey me, but say, Moses, you're crazy. The Lord did not appear to you. Okay? What if they won't believe me? Fear of people's opinions. I love this scene because uh, Moses is so relatable. Um, Moses is thinking like, okay, you're sending me back to the people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt, uh, and I'm supposed to tell them, you know, I've been gone for 40 years, now I'm showing back up, and I'm supposed to go to them and be like, hey, I know this sounds really weird, but I was out in the wilderness, and there was this bush, <laughs> and the bush was on fire, and even though it was on fire, it like didn't burn up, and in the bush, Yahweh spoke to me, and he said, hey, I love my people, I want to save my people, and I'm sending you. So I'm supposed to go tell them all of this. What am I supposed to do if they go, you are insane, you know? And this is like really justified fear. This sounds absolutely crazy. This is for free. I don't have this in my notes, but I was listening to a, a Joe Rogan interview. Don't, this is not... 
This is not a plug for Joe Rogan in any sense. So, but he was interviewing a guy named Jordan Peterson, and they were actually arguing that in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses uncovers the, uh, finds himself at the burning bush, that he was on psychedelics, okay? And so it's like really, people are still saying this, that Moses is crazy. And Moses is like, what if I show up to the people, and they, th- they say, you're crazy. We're not listening to you. Moses right here is scared of people and their opinions. But I love this. The Lord is patient with him. One of the things I love about this passage is that the Lord can handle Moses' questions. Moses is constantly questioning God. You might be here questioning God, asking really big questions about life and faith in God, and you need to know that God can handle your questions. He's not scared of them, and he's patient with your questions. He's patient the whole way through. The Lord's patient with him, and the Lord, what the Lord does with this, with his question, is like, he give, uh, God, what if they won't listen to me, is uh, the Lord gives Moses three signs, okay? Three signs, and these three signs have a double intention, okay? And I'm gonna explain them here in just a second, but I wanna talk about the signs first. This, the, the, the double intention of the signs, first, these the signs are to prove to Moses that he's not crazy, but that his experience was real, okay? So the signs are for Moses, but the signs are also for the people of Israel when Moses goes back for Moses to do to show them that Moses is not crazy, okay? It's a double intention. They're for Moses, and they're for the people of God when Moses gets back to Egypt and is talking to them. So I wanna walk through these signs and explain them, but before I do that, I wanna, I wanna just give a word on how to understand signs in the Bible, okay? Because you know, while Olivia was reading this, you're probably like, interesting, staff and snake and water and blood, like really weird stuff, right? Really weird stuff. And so I just want to give a word on how to understand signs in the Bible. Signs, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so even the signs that Jesus uh, performs, are not random magic tricks that God does with no purpose or intention, okay? They're not random magic tricks where it's like, ooh, wow, cool. That's not like, that's not the intention of the signs. Every sign in the Bible is there to point beyond itself to something greater, okay? So you can think about it uh, just like a road sign. The the point of a sharp curve ahead sign is never the sign itself. It's to point to the sharp curve ahead. In fact, if you pay too much attention to the sign, you will wreck your car, okay? So the point of a sign is always to point beyond itself. In the same way, the point of a biblical sign is never the sign, it's never the sign. It's to point to the God of the sign and, and make us think about what that sign shows us about the God of the sign. Does that make sense? So, so let me show you how this works. Sign number one, sign number one is the staff and the snake. Okay, so we're gonna walk through these three signs and I just wanna like unpack them a little bit. The staff and the snake. Um, so Moses goes, man, what if they don't listen to me? And God says, hey, I'm gonna give you three signs. Sign number one, the staff and the snake. This is verse two. The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, God said. So Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake. I love this. And he ran from it. Of course he did. It's like, yeah, that's terrifying. Verse four. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand, so overcome that fear, and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand, and he caught the snake, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, God continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Genesis, has appeared to you, Moses. Okay, so let's just name it. 
this is weird. Okay, this is weird. Snake, a staff, into a staff, into a snake, and back into a staff. What is going on? What's up with it? Well, it's not a random magic trick. It's not a random magic trick. It's a sign. What is this sign pointing to? Two things in particular. There's kind of a surface level meaning to the sign, and then I kind of under, under the current level meaning to this sign. Um, first, it's, this sign is pointing to the reality that God can use normal things to do extraordinary work. The first thing this sign shows us is the surface level meaning. God can use normal things, and I'll even go this far, normal people to do extraordinary work. Moses' staff, this piece of wood, is going to play a starring role in the book of Exodus, okay? It's going to be there, like, all along the way. It's going to be there um, whenever he... Uh, it's going to be there for the plagues here in a couple chapters. It's going to be there for the plagues. It's going to be there when Moses defeats the, the magicians of Egypt. We'll talk about that. It's going to be there whenever he... Boom, parts the Red Sea, the biggest part of the story. It's going to be there when he hits the rock. He's not really supposed to hit the rock, but he hits the rock with the staff and water comes out of the rock. The staff is going to play a starring role through this. And this is what's cool. The staff is always a reminder from this point forward to Moses and to us of what God can do through normal people and normal things when they are put fully into his hands, okay? So, so this is where I'm getting this. Francis Schaeffer, um, incredible writer, go read Francis Schaeffer, has a sermon, I love the title of this, no, called No Little People, No Little Places. No Little People, No Little Places. God loves even the littlest of people in the littlest of places. And where he talks about, in this sermon, Moses' staff, and he says this, consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. I love this. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. I love that. I actually thought about that right before I came up here to teach. I'm not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod or staff, he says rod, but as the staff of Moses had to become the staff of God, he threw it on the ground. So that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that, that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. He threw it on the ground. Look what God can do. Moses watches this, staff to snake to staff, and goes, wow, if God can do that with that little old stick of wood, what can he do with little old me? It's faith building for Moses. Moses, by this time, uh, is about 80 years old, so he's an old guy. Sorry if you're 80, that's deep into life. He's deep into life. And uh, he's lived a few periods of life uh, by this time. He's lived, a, I'm just trying not to offend anybody. He, he's lived a little bit of life. He spent 40 years in Egypt. He spent 40 years in the wilderness, and now God's calling him back to come and lead. So he's, he's 80, maybe a little bit beyond 80 by this time. I love what Dwight Moody says about Moses in this moment. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody in Egypt, 40 years learning he was a nobody in the desert, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody, the Exodus. And it's like, yes, I love that. But the staff and the snake also has a secondary meaning, has a, secondary, has a, has a deeper meaning uh, running under the surface. The second meaning is this. It was to show that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is more powerful than the most powerful forces of Egypt. Okay? 
The God, of, the God of Israel is more powerful than the most powerful forces of Egypt. The snake, likely a cobra, was a symbol of Egyptian power. The Egyptians worshipped the snake as a source of wisdom and healing. In fact, we've got a picture of this. We can go ahead and put this picture right up here. Uh, in fact, uh, the symbol of the snake was so central to life in Egypt that the pharaoh would wear it on their crown. You see that right up here. You see the snakes right up there. They would wear it on their crown as a symbol of power and wisdom and healing. The snake was huge in Egypt. Now, there, there's, so that's, that's, Another level deeper, now let's go another level deeper. Let's just put on our biblical theology hats and go, okay, 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 snake, 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 snake. We're seeing a snake here, here. There was a snake before this in the Bible too though, right? So let's go. There's a snake, snake. Where was the last time we saw a snake? Garden of Eden. Yes, you guys are so good. I'm proud of you. As a Bible quiz, you pass. Uh, Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, the last time we saw a snake was in Genesis chapter 3 as the enemy of God and us, humanity, the tricky one, Satan. So watch this. Egypt, this is showing us, this is showing us that Egypt has aligned itself with the powers and principalities of darkness from back there in Genesis chapter three. Now watch this. By changing the stick into a snake and back again, God was demonstrating his power and authority over the gods and powers of Egypt and over even Satan himself. The staff and the snake. Moses says, God, there's no way that they're going to believe me. And God lifts his eyes up. He, he gets introspective and he goes, they'll, they'll never believe me. But what does God do? He lifts, he lifts his eyes up with this sign. And he says, I can use anyone to do anything. And Egypt and Satan bow at my word. Eyes on me, buddy. Wow. Beautiful stuff. Sign number two. Sign number two. The diseased hand. The diseased hand. Verse six. In addition... The Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he puts it inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. He had leprosy on his hand. Put your hand back inside your cloak, God said. So he put it, his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. And God says this, if they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence, evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. Leprosy was widespread in Egypt and was, this is important, this is the important piece to know, it was completely incurable, okay? So leprosy in Egypt at this time was a death sentence. You get it, there's no hope for you, you isolate from society and you wait to die. And as God gives leprosy to Moses' hand and takes it away, he's showing that he is the God who can do the impossible, he is the God who can do the impossible. What the people think is impossible, healing from leprosy and deliverance from Egypt, what the people think is impossible is not impossible to their God. Uh, God is saying, eyes on me, Moses. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. Sign number three. The water and the blood. The water and the blood. The water and the blood. Verse nine. And if they don't believe even these two signs, so we're gonna see this all throughout the book of the Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, um, people have a really hard time believing God. And so God goes, I'm gonna give you this one awesome sign, they're probably not gonna believe that. I'm gonna give you the second awesome sign, they're probably not gonna believe that. So let me give you a third amazing sign. And this is what we find in verses nine, or verse nine. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. 
the water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. The Nile River was the source of life for the Egyptians. It provided drinking water and via aqueducts was able to turn their barren dry land into fertile land where they could grow crops and thrive as an empire. It was, the Nile River is everything to Egypt. It's the reason they can thrive as a nation. The third sign right here points to God's ability to take away the primary source of life and cripple their brutal Egyptian taskmasters. I wish I could spend more time on this sign, but we're actually going to talk a lot more about it because in Exodus chapter 7, this becomes the first plague. And so God's going to do this sign here in a couple chapters, and we'll talk a lot more about it. So here's the point. Here's the point of all this. Remember, Moses is scared of the people's opinions, He's like, man, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? So think about it this way. For Moses in this moment, people and their opinions are really big and God is really small, okay? People and their opinions are really big and God is really small. And what God is doing through these signs of grace for Moses is he's flipping this reality upside down. Moses in this moment when he's scared of people, he's living in a false reality, Okay, where people and their opinions are really big and his God is really small. He's living in a false reality. So God invites him into the true reality where God is really big and people are really small. People and their opinions are really small, or I should say, true to size. True to size. They really can't do much. They really can't do much. By the way, plug for a book. Ed Welts wrote a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Go read the book. It's incredible, incredible book all about this point. Moses gets introspective, and when he gets introspective, he gets defeated. Man, who am I for these people to believe me and follow me? And God responds by inviting him to do what? To get extrospective, lift his eyes up, and look at God. That's the point of the signs. I am the God who can use anybody for anything, Moses. I am the God who rules over the world powers, Moses. I am the God who can do the impossible, Moses, leprosy. I am the God who can take the life source of empires away so that they are crippled in a moment, Moses. Eyes on me. So listen, let me bring this down into life. We all wake, wake up every morning with wanting people to love us. We all, this is like, we all do. This is why I get nervous to teach the Bible on Sundays, because I want you to like me. And whether, you, and whether you will admit it or not, you're the same way. I think as you get deeper into life, you lose a little bit, bit of this, which is a gift. You're kind of like, I am who I am. But especially if you're in your 20s or your 30s like me, like, man, fear of people is a really big deal. It's natural. But guys, it can get out of hand. Where we get, and I don't know if you feel this, but I feel this sometimes, where we just get so insecure around people, where we get so insecure around people. So what do we need when we find ourselves battling the fear of people, battling like deep insecurity and always wondering, man, like how, how do these people feel about me? Do they like me? Do they not like me? What do we do? Well, when we find ourselves there, we, we need what Moses need, needed. We need what Moses needed. Notice what God doesn't give Moses, and I'm gonna hit on this, Mike hit on this last week, I'm gonna hit on this a couple times. We don't need a pep talk. You don't need me to tell you, you're awesome and good looking. Of course they like you. You have a sweet personality. Of course they, we don't need a pep talk. We don't need a pep talk. We don't need to look deeper into ourselves. We don't need a hype, a personal hype session where we play like, 
eye of the tiger and kind of like, I'm awesome. What we need is we need the fear of man to become the fear of God. We need the fear of man to become the fear of God. Moses gets introspective and defeated and God gives him a fresh vision of who his God is. And we need this because we're forgetful. We need a vision of God lodged in our hearts that represents who our God really is. He's all-powerful. These are the signs. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign over the nations. He can use anybody to do anything. He can heal any disease. He can do what we think is impossible. And he loves me and is for me. These wild realities. We need this vision of God lodged in our hearts. We need God to become big and people to become true to size. Fear number one, the fear of people and their opinions. Fear number two, the fear of personal weakness. The fear of personal weakness. All of those signs, this is instructive to us, were not enough for Moses. Okay? He's still freaking out. After like the hand thing and the snake thing, he's still like, his internal reality is still in freak out mode. Okay? Verse 10. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. What's funny is, uh, I, I read one commentator who pointed out that uh, this, uh, this in the original Hebrew, in the original language, is actually one of the most well-written and eloquent sections of the book of Exodus. That like, actually what Moses is really good at, he feels most secure in. His, like, deepest gifting, he's, like, all of a sudden, like, I don't talk too good. Like, that's basically what he's he's saying. (laughs) Moses sees God's plans for his life. He gets introspective again, and he gets defeated again. And what does God do? God lifts him out of his introspective defeat, and he goes, eyes on me, buddy. Eyes on me. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, I love these verses so much, probably because of what I do, but who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. I'm gonna help you. There's a saying that everyone thinks is in the Bible, but is not in the Bible. Okay, so I brought this. We're going to put it on the screen. It is right here. And I want it to be very clear down here that this is, that this is not a Bible verse. Okay? Because everyone thinks this is a Bible verse. This is not a Bible verse. Uh, I meant to have on the screen down here, not in the Bible. There's a saying that everyone thinks in the Bible, not in the Bible. God will not give you more than you can handle. Okay? Um, now, for those of you who are really questioning, like, there is a verse that's similar to that. It's about temptation. It says, God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. But the Bible never says, God will not give you more than you can handle. If anything is a theme in the Bible, and we're seeing it right here, it's that God is constantly giving us more than we can handle on our own. Constantly. And he does this as a grace so that we can, it can drive us to him and we can learn to carry it with him. It's a grace. When you feel overwhelmed by life, it is a grace from God that's meant to drive you to him. The singer-songwriter Jason Isbell has a line in a song called, uh, called Last of My Kind where he says this. I love this line. Mama says God won't give you too much to bear. That might be true in Arkansas. Go hogs. But I'm a long, long way from there. I couldn't, I was saying this, I was like, I can't say Arkansas without saying go hogs. 
Uh, I'm from Arkansas, that's why. The point of this line, the point of this line is that when you get out from the, under the protection of mama and daddy, and you live a little bit of life, you find very quickly that all of life is totally hard and overwhelming. Like all of it. And like you try to do things to handle it. You try to escape and you try to like, maybe I go on vacation. I went on vacation a couple weeks ago and I came back and all my problems were still there. It's like that's just how it feels. It's like all of life is totally hard and overwhelming. Like I was just thinking about this. For those of you who are single and desire to be married, the, the loneliness that comes with it, hard. It's hard to carry. For those of you that are married like me, the, the fights and the disagreements that come with it, Hard. The grind of work in the real world, hard. Try parenting, hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And the list could go on forever. Life is hard. And it's really instructive, again, what God does when Moses feels his own weakness. He doesn't give him a pep talk on how sufficient Moses is for the task. He doesn't say, I've gifted you for such a time as this. You know, he doesn't do that. He invites Moses out of crippling introspection and into God dependence. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. And this is true for you too. You have an assignment in life. You have, a, you have a purpose in life. I have a purpose in life. It's this like conglomeration of your career and your family and your, and your friends and the, the local church that you're a part of and the mission that Jesus has given us to take the good news of Jesus. It's like you have an assignment in life and I'll just like burst your bubble you don't have what it takes to carry it on your own. You don't. And that's totally okay. And that's totally okay. Because God does. And your felt weakness is an invitation from God to ask for help. And all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. The fear of personal weakness. Number three, fear number three, the fear of failure the fear of failure. I love this, don't miss this. That's still not enough for Moses. <laughs> God gives him the signs. He's like, I'm gonna help you. And I love this. Verse 13, Moses says, you would think at this point, Moses is like, wow, those are cool signs. That's really good. Okay, God is gonna help me. Okay, I'm in. Watch what he does. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. <laughs> I um, this is the opposite. If you've been in the church for a while, you know Isaiah 6, where he's like, here I am, Lord, send me. And every pastor has stood on a stage and been like, be like Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. And it's like, this is the opposite of Isaiah 6. He's like, here I am, Lord, send somebody else. I do not, I do not want what you have assigned me to do in life. And it's like, have you ever felt like that? I feel like that. Like, I don't want to do the assignment you've given me. I want to do somebody else's assignment. Please, Lord, send someone else. It's easy to feel annoyed with Moses at this point because this is so us too. Like, from a different angle, this is us too. We, we come in here every week. This is what we're doing right now. We come in here every week and we, like, remember uh, the truth of the gospel. That though we've blown it, Jesus Christ is sufficient for us. That we've been, like, forgiven of our sin, welcomed into the fellowship with God. We've been given the hope of eternal life, the power of the Holy Spirit, and we get amped up. And then by the Sunday evening, if you're like me, you're questioning everything, Right? It's like, this is what we do, and this is Moses. This is how real life works. But this time, 
But this time, this triggers something in God. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. The Lord gets angry with Moses because of his unwillingness to obey. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. But watch this. Right after this, we we have this deep character of God moment that is so instructive in how the God of the Bible works. Because right after this, I'll show you this in just a second. Right after this, God's patience and his grace wins out over his anger. If you've been around the church, this is the gospel. (laughs) That in Christ, God's anger and judgment towards sin is there and it is real. But he comes because his grace and his patience have won out over his anger. Watch this. He gets angry with Moses, but then he supplies Moses' need. This is the rest of verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, he doesn't say what we think he would say. He doesn't go, I'm done with you, you idiot. We think he would say that. We think that he says that's how he relates to us. This is not how God relates to us. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, this is so cool, he is on his way now to meet you. Cool little thing here. Before Moses tells God he don't talk too good, before he does that, and he says, I can't go send somebody else, God knew, God knew, that he was going to say that and that he felt that way and he had already asked Aaron to come. The text says in verse 14, Aaron's on his way. He's on his way now to meet you. Here's what we're supposed to see. God was working to supply Moses' need before Moses even felt or expressed the need. This is how God has worked with you too in the cross of Jesus Christ. Before you ever even took a breath, God supplied your need of salvation because he loves you. This is the rest of this 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 little section. He will rejoice when he sees you, your brother Aaron. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. Basically, God's going, I'm giving you a helper to go with you. I will help you both. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. I know you're scared to do this. I'm supplying your need. He will serve as a mouthpiece for you and you will serve as God to him and take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Don't forget the staff either. I love that little, remember the staff. Don't forget the staff. Moses gets introspective and defeated. God lifts his eyes up and shows him that God will supply his every need along the way. God is saying, you will not fail because I will be with you. In fact, I'm ahead of your needs. I've already asked your brother to come. We live, I'm not done yet, so don't, but I'm gonna sum it up. We live in the time of introspection. We live in the time of introspection. We look in, Find yourself, then be true to yourself, and you will be free. This is everywhere. 
But guys, if we're just honest, self-centered secularism is not working. It's actually failing us. Just look at the stats, depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction. It's not working. The point of this passage is the point of the good news of Jesus. We don't need to look inside of ourselves to be saved from the things that threaten us. We need to look outside of ourselves for salvation and help. We need to look to Jesus Christ. So let me just, let me just ask you this question. Uh, in the passage, you see that when Moses expresses fear, God, are you with me? Are you for me? Are you gonna help me? When Moses expresses fear, what does God give him? God gives him signs, right? God's a God of signs. God gives him signs to show him, I'm with you, I'm for you, I love you, I'm not gonna abandon you, I have all power. So let me ask you this question. What signs has God given you that show you that he is with you, for you, loves you, won't abandon you, will be with you forever? What signs has he given you? Well, before your mind goes wandering for burning bushes, let me just say, he's given you two signs. He's given you two signs to prove his love to you. They're the signs of the cross and the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Jesus talks about this. Matthew 16, 4. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. This is interesting. Don't come asking me for signs. Evil and adulterous people ask me for signs to prove that I'm with them. But no sign will be given to it except, we have a sign, the sign of Jonah. Now we're getting real deep, okay? This is not light Bible study, okay? This is not light Bible study. Put your scuba tanks on. <laughs> what was he saying there? What's the sign of Jonah? What is that? What is that? If you remember, Jonah is the one in the Old Testament who went down into the depths into death, he was swallowed by a whale, he was spit up, he was raised from the dead place in order to preach repentance and salvation to sinful people. Jesus says, no sign's gonna be given to you except the sign of Jonah. He was saying that the sign that we look to as followers of Jesus is the sign of the one who went down into the darkness of death for three days and came up in power to preach repentance and salvation to sinners and sufferers among all the nations. So if you are here today and you're asking like Moses in all kinds of fear because, of, because life is hard, will God be with me? Is God powerful? Does my God love me? Can I trust him? Look to the sign. Look to the sign. Our sign is the cross and the resurrection and it's the only sign, listen to me, it's the only sign we need to know fully and finally that God is with us and for us and loves us and will not abandon us. It's the only sign that we need. We look to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who has become intimately involved in our suffering so that he could deliver us from our greatest enemies in a new and better exodus, Satan, judgment for our sin, hell and death itself, and invite us into eternal life. Look to the signs. God died for you. God rose again in power for you. So here's the big idea of Exodus 4. When you feel faithless, shaky, scared, and weak, 
Your God will be patient and faithful and stable and confident and strong. So if you walked in here and you maybe feel like your life is a wreck, you're kind of at wit's end, you're overwhelmed by God knows what, and like, man, you're like, I'm just like in over my head. Again, welcome to church. We all feel that way. Don't look in. Look up to God, the one who has and will supply your every need. Now, from here, in the rest of the chapter, Moses reluctantly obeys God. I think that he like kind of obeys God through a scowl. I'll go. But toward the end of this chapter, there's this weird scene, and I'm closing with this weird scene that I want to talk about for just a second to close. And I, I want to talk about this. Uh, there's two reasons I want to talk about this to close. Number one, just because I have the conviction that when I teach the Bible, I want to talk about the hardest thing in the chapter. <laughs> because uh, where, where we have hard questions, there are good answers, okay? And so we always like want to, that's just the conviction of our church. We're going to go all in. So this is the hard part and I want to talk about it, but two, this part's also really instructive for us on how to respond to God today, okay? So watch this. Moses reluctantly obeys, and he starts this journey to Egypt. Verse 24, on the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, Moses, and intended to put him to death. Okay, weird. Gets weirder. So Zipporah, this is his wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, she circumcised him, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. What's up with that? What's up with that? The sign in Genesis uh, that was given of the covenant between God and his people is circumcision, right? Circumcision, whenever a baby boy was born, the parents would circumcise the son, and this was their way of saying, like, we are covenanting to go all in on God. We are God's people. We are not our own. We're not the people of another God. We're not the people that look like the cultures that surround us. We are God's people. We are the people of Israel. We belong to Yahweh. And this is our covenant sign. We circumcise our son. This is what showed that they were all in on God. And right here in this passage, we learn that Moses had not circumcised his son. Why? He knew... He knew that this was like the sign. Why? Well, the answer is he was hedging his bets. He was thinking, okay, if this whole God delivering us thing doesn't work, maybe my family and my son can slide back into the power structures of Egypt and be okay. Because he's not circumcised. Like, they won't even know. Like, yeah, he used to, you know, no, like they can just slide back in, they'll be okay. He's actually, he's actually trying to protect his family. But God says, that's not how I play. 
That's not how I play. You are all in with Yahweh or you are not. Make your choice. And again, we have the courage of a woman saving God's people. Our family's all in on God. She circumcises the son, throws it down and goes, we're all in on Yahweh. We're covenanting. We're in with God and if we get there and God abandons us, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I don't think he's going to. I'm all in on God. Two points to this. Number one, the blood of the son always saves. The blood of the son always saves. Now under the new covenant, we have the blood of another son, God the son. And through his shed blood, we are forgiven of our, our sins and welcomed into life with God. But point number two is don't hedge your bets. Either you're all in on God or you are not. Make your choice. And Zipporah shows us the way forward. She's a model to us of what it looks like to respond in faith. Don't hedge your bets. Go all in on the God of the Bible and he will lead you to freedom. We're gonna respond in four different ways today. They all start with C, you're welcome. I'm a pastor. Number one is conversion. Conversion. If you're here and you would not consider yourself a Christian, um, one of the things that I really value is I just want our cards on the table. We are not a bait and switch. I want you to convert to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what I want. But here's what I also want you to know. We are not pushy about this. We make invitations for you to, for you to make decisions. We don't force this on anybody. But also I want you to think about this. Everyone is tr trying to convert you to something. Everyone's trying to convert you to something. The question is not whether or not we are being converted. The question is, can that thing give us what we are really longing for? And if you would not consider yourself a Christian, I wanna invite you to be converted to life with Jesus Christ as your savior and your king. You can do this by turning and trusting Jesus that his life and his death on the cross means God can and will forgive your sin and your mistakes. And his resurrection means that he's going to make everything new and that he can make you new. He can erase your past and make you new. If, we, if you would like to do that or have a conversation about doing that, we wanna make that as easy as possible. We're gonna have a couple of our staff members standing right over here by this door during our response time, and they would love to chat with you and just kinda of listen to you, ask questions. They would love to answer questions. That's like, they're not gonna like force you to do anything, but we would love to help you know Jesus for the very first time. Second, we're gonna respond through communion. We're gonna stare at our signs, the cross and the resurrection. We're gonna remember that Jesus' blood was shed, his body was given, so that we, he took the punishment that we deserved for our sin, death, so that we don't have to bear it. And we look at this sign, and we remember that God loves us. He gave his son for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we have stations right there in the back, right in the back corners. We've got two stations up here. We're gonna respond through taking communion. There's a gluten-free station back to my back left. Third, we're gonna respond through conversation. If you wanna have conversation with somebody about something that was said today, and you just want prayer, uh, you need help with something, we're gonna have our prayer team right up here on this side of the stage. They would love to pray for you. And finally, celebration. We're gonna celebrate. We're gonna sing and celebrate that this is who our God is. So let's stand and let's respond as the Lord leads us.